सहनावतु सहनो भुनक्तु सह वीर करवाह तेजस्वी नवधीतमस्तु May the Lord uh, protect us both, teacher and taught together. May the Lord give us the results of our study. May our study be illuminating. May our study be invigorating. And may there, no be, there be no friction between us, no cavailing between us. Om, peace, peace, peace. So in the Katopanishad, we are in the um, second chapter, the second valley, the second section of the second chapter, almost finished, but we have come to a mantra which is probably one of the most spectacular mantras of the all the Upanishads and Swami Vivekananda's favorite mantra um, that, that the sun does not illumine, nor the moon, nor the lightning, what to speak of this little, nor the stars. And uh, then not the lightning, what to speak of this little mortal fire, that shining, everything else shines by its light, everything is lit up. So that mantra we're coming to, and that's the concluding sort of a grand conclusion to this very powerful and beautiful um, section. But before that, the 14th mantra, which we did last time, Tade Tade Manyante Anirdeshyam Paramam Sukham that was the 14th mantra. What it means is that this indeed, this indeed means the Atma Vigyana, the knowledge of the self, the realization of the self as this, this one non-dual entity, that I am this, I am consciousness. And this one non-dual entity, existence awareness, which shines forth as this entire universe. And as indeed as me, the experiencer of this universe. But I am actually not this one subject, nor is there a separate object apart from that, that real self. I am the real self in which the knower and the known are appearing. And realization of that. This is what, what has been taught. And that itself, manyantid, the wise speak of it, think of it as anidesyam paramam sukham. This inconceivable ultimate joy or in one word that would be ananda sukham uh, happiness paramam ultimate anirdeshyam which cannot be expressed nirdesha means expression in language anirdeshyam cannot be expressed in language so this ultimate bliss which cannot be expressed in language in vedanta this is called ananda now what is this ananda i was a little dissatisfied with the way i sort of you know gentle sort of glided over it last time so i want to spend a little time with it today before we go on to the final mantra of this section so anirdeshyam paramam sukham what is meant by ananda in the upanishads in vedanta by ananda look at it it's helpful to look at it analogously to existence consciousness because it's always put in this way existence consciousness bliss Sat, Chit, Ananda. So, in order to understand what Ananda means in Vedanta, 
uh, we need to look at what existence means in Vedanta, what consciousness means in Vedanta, then we'll get a clue. Notice, when you say existence in Vedanta, it does not mean existing things. It means that which appears to us as existing things. So, um, the computer is an existing thing. This living body is an existing thing. A table is an existing thing. The planets and stars are existing things. The tiniest of particles are existing things. It's not that the self, Atman, Brahman is one more existing thing in the list of these existing things. Rather, it is the very existence of all these things. When you say it's not one among all existing things, immediately our, our logical mind thinks, oh, so it doesn't exist. For us, reality is existing things. Things which exist, that's reality. When you ask, what's reality? This is reality. Computer is real. You, Swami, are real. The chair you are sitting on is real. If you were, the chair were not real, you would be pretty soon sitting on the floor. So all of these things are existing things. And this is reality for us. But the Atman or Brahman, pure being, Sat, is a greater or a deeper level of reality than existing things. What could be a deeper level of reality than existing things? Uh, existence itself. That sounds pretty abstract, but it's not. Why is it not abstract? Consider this example, the well-known example of the, uh, of the gold and the ornaments. So when you look at ornaments, uh, there's a necklace, there's a bracelet, there's a ring or a tiara or a crown or something like that. And these are ornaments. This is reality. The ornaments are the reality. Now, if somebody comes and tells you that no, much greater than all of these, underlying all of these, the reality, the real, really real thing here is gold. Now, if I look at the catalog of ornaments, okay, now I'm, I, I've heard of this amazing thing called gold. I don't want the tiara, the necklace, the ring. I want the gold. But it's nowhere in the catalog. The gold is nowhere in the catalog. It's not one more ornament. But that does not mean that gold doesn't exist. It's actually, gold is the only thing that exists. All these existing things, the ornaments, they're nothing other than gold. They are gold plus name and form and use. When, um, so gold plus a name, a plus a form, if you put it in this way and call it a bracelet and put it on your wrist. So the form is like this and it's called, it's a name is bracelet and you put it on, the use is putting on your wrist. Nama, Rupa, Vyavahara. Nama is the label, the nominal thing we call, the name we put, put to it. Uh, Rupa is the form. And remember, form just not, need not be a visual form. Music has auditory form. Flavors have tastes. Um, odors uh, have, uh, there's the form in, in uh, things which we smell. There's a form in, in the touch we have also, tender or rough or texture. So all form means any kind in which we experience. So all of these are forms. And even deeper, why just sensory forms? There are uh, mental forms. There are emotional forms. There are intellectual forms. I'm sure when, um, you know, pure mathematicians talk about um, you know, with joy about the elegance of a theory. That's a particular form which appeals to them. Uh, this wonderful theory, you know. So, form. Name and form and use are the bracelet. But the gold is the, is the reality of it. 
And when I say gold plus name and form and use, it's not like one plus one more thing plus one more thing. Now you have got two or three things. No, no. They are not plus in the sense of adding some real extra thing. They are not plus in the sense of countably plus. Countably, if you count, even when you make the gold into a bracelet, there's still one gold. You melt it, make it into a ring. Different form, different name, different use. Still one gold. It isn't two because you, you made the gold into a ring. It's not that there are two now. Gold and ring. You cannot do that because you cannot count them separately. Take the gold away, no ring. Count the ring, you're already counting the gold. So, exactly like that, Advaita Vedanta says, there is being itself, existence itself, that is called Sat. Sat is being, that which is real. And that we experience as existing things when, you, when through Maya are imposed name and form and use, Nama Rupa Vyavahara, countably still one. No matter how many you see, no matter how many names you give, how many forms are there, how many forms keep changing, always not two. Advaitam, being is one. Sat Advaitam. Sat means pure being, Advaitam, non-dual. All right, we understand that. Exactly in the same way, look at consciousness. That which gives us all experiences. The moment we say consciousness, um, what comes to our mind are conscious experiences, are conscious events. I am seeing you now. This is consciousness. I am hearing you now. This is consciousness. I'm reading. I'm thinking. I'm enjoying. I'm suffering. This is consciousness. This is how we understand consciousness. But exactly like that, you must analyze Advaita Vedanta would mean consciousness is not these individual fleeting experiences coming and going. That which gives us all these fleeting experiences, that is consciousness. That which makes it possible for us to see, hear, smell, taste, see what? See everything. Um, and hear and smell and taste and touch. The Kane Upanishad starts with this question. My intention is to actually do the Kena Upanishad after we finish this. Um, so the Kena Upanishad starts with this question. Impelled by what? Do we have this experience of thinking? Do our minds think? By what? Uh, by what shining power? Kaudeva. By what shining power? Um, do, our, do our eyes see and our ears hear? And uh, our, we have the experience of talking. So if you look at it biologically, physiologically, the physiology of vision is quite different from the physiology of hearing. Physiology of smelling is quite different from the physiology of speaking. The entire mechanisms are quite different. But the question is, what's the one thing behind all of them? Which means the one thing behind all these conscious experiences is consciousness itself. Just like gold is not part of the catalog of ornaments. Just like pure being is not part of the catalog of all the existing things in the universe. Similarly, pure consciousness is not in the list of conscious experiences. Not even mystical experiences. If somebody might say, yes, yes, I understand. Um, Atman, Brahman is not, um, you know, it's not something that you see or hear or smell or 
it is an extraordinary mystical experience. No, it's not one more mystical experience. It's even the mystical experience depends on this consciousness. Just saying that Atman or Brahman is a particular mystical experience is like saying gold is a particular kind of ornament. No, it isn't. Even the most beautiful golden ornament, extraordinary, matchless, is still the same gold. Similarly, it's the same consciousness which reveals to us all conscious experience, which makes possible all conscious experiences. This has to be um, you know, sort of strongly grasped. Why? This will come up in the next mantra. This All this consciousness talk, which I am the first person most guilty of, in talking about consciousness, we are consciousness, we are pure consciousness, it can be misleading. It's, it's also important to say once in a while, we are not consciousness. Chit, Chaitanya does not mean consciousness in the sense we normally understand consciousness. Uh, let me read Vivekananda himself. I just found this um, in one. What is God? He says, beyond speech, beyond thought, beyond consciousness. He says. That could be quite surprising to somebody who's been studying Vedanta. What do you mean beyond consciousness? If you read um, Nisargadatta Maharaj, more than once, he says, at the point of death, physical death, consciousness also goes away. Body goes, mind, mind shuts down, consciousness also goes away. So, of course, that's because of a translation from uh, Marathi. That's why people might misunderstand. That means, does everything go away? No. Pure consciousness remains. Pure being, pure consciousness remains. But one must thoroughly purge our understanding of this, what we normally mean by consciousness. What is normally studied in consciousness studies also. One clue to what is meant by consciousness in Advaita Vedanta is deep sleep. In deep sleep also consciousness is there. In what sense consciousness is there in deep sleep, that will give us a clue to what Advaita Vedanta means by consciousness. Because otherwise, when we have this waking experience through our senses, suppose all this shuts down. Dream experience in our minds. Suppose all that shuts down. And deep sleep, just nothing. Or go even further. Coma, anesthesia, the deepest of deep sleep, anesthesia. In what sense is consciousness fully there? Then you will begin to understand what Advaita Vedanta means by consciousness. Because to our ordinary way of understanding, that's not conscious. That's unconscious. Because that's what we, we think by consciousness, this one. This uh, feeling which we are having now. Again, we are not wrong. Just as in all existing things, existence itself is there. In all ornaments, gold itself is there. Similarly, on all these conscious experiences, pure consciousness alone is there. But to understand what pure consciousness is by itself, we must purge our idea. Just like to understand what gold is, one must purge our idea of various forms of ornaments and yet hold on to the reality of the gold. Similarly. You know, it's like light. Like light. If somebody wants to tell you that really light is, look at deep space towards the sun at night. The sun is not there. We are not seeing the sun. Look up into space. Dark. That's light. We will say, no, 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 no. That's not light. Light is this which in daytime we see. Look at our world. So many beautiful, the red of sunrise, golden red of sunrise, the sparkling blue of the winter sky, 
and all the variety of colors shining everywhere in the, in the garden and all, that is light. You're right, that's light plus objects from which light is being reflected. But light in itself is that which is racing from the sun through space in the utter darkness. If you look out into space, utterly dark, full of light. The moment a comet races through that darkness, you see the blazing tail of the comet. Why? Because the moment there's something to reflect light, you see light, it's there, it's already there. Now, exactly in the same way, consciousness is itself not a variety of conscious experiences, but all conscious experiences depend upon consciousness. All right, this is all the background to pointing out what ananda really is, what bliss really is in Advaitic sense. Ananda, the moment we say happiness, bliss, ananda, we feel smiley face. It must be, you're really happy. We know what happiness is and we really want it. And that's what it must be. A really extraordinary happiness, lots of it, unending. That's what I want. And I think that's what you're promising. That's what ananda is. No. And that's not bad news. It's actually good news. Let me explain. Ananda is not another kind of happiness. You know, happiness comes and goes, is more or less, and is dependent on the mind and objects. So ananda by itself is not that. Ananda is that which makes all this happiness possible, but in itself is not any one of these happinesses or pleasures. Just like gold is that which constitutes all ornament, but is not an ornament. Similarly, ananda is that which constitutes all happiness, all fulfillment, all joy, but it's not a particular kind of joy. Okay. Um, let me go into a little details about what this ananda is and how we get it. Um, I will use Taittiriya Upanishad. I don't know when we will get to it, but, so, but let me just bring in that part of Taittiriya Upanishad, the second chapter, which we will use to understand what ananda is just now. Um, in the second chapter of the Taittiriya Upanishad, at the very end, there's a section, eighth section of the Taittiriya, second chapter of Taittiriya Upanishad, which is called Ananda Mimamsa, um, an analysis of joy, of ananda. There it says, the Vedantic theory of happiness, what is the Vedantic theory of happiness? Is that you are ananda itself, you are joy or bliss itself. And the ananda or bliss which we experience as happiness in the world is your reflection in the mind. Let me repeat that. You are joy itself. And the joy that you experience in the world and you seek in the world is your reflection in the mind. It's like you are the face itself. Here's the face. But you don't see the face. The face that you see is a reflection of your real face in the mirror. The ananda by itself is you, the ananda that you experience, which comes and goes, which is more or less, which seems to have so many varieties. It is an experience, uh, is a reflection of the ananda in the mirror of the mind. So there is bliss and reflected bliss. Okay. Now what do you do with this? Three, three, approach, three approaches. All Taittiriya Upanishad, last section. Three approaches to bliss. The worldly approach. 
the spiritual approach and the enlightened approach. So the worldly approach is, maybe I am bliss, but uh, the fact is, in order to enjoy this bliss, I have to reflect it in the mind. Right? Unless I feel it, what's the point of saying that I am bliss? Since I have to reflect it in the mind. Just like, I understand you're saying that pure existence is the reality. Fine. But to really enjoy that existence, I must have existing things. Pure consciousness is my nature. Fine. But in order to enjoy that, I must have conscious experiences. Something to experience. Similarly, pure bliss is my nature. Great. But in order to enjoy that, or to be of any use at all to me, uh, I must be able to reflect it. So I must be able to experience it in the mind. Then, the next step, who is saying this? The worldly seeker of joy says that in order to experience it in the mind, I seem to need objects. I must have a nice cookie, a nice piece of music, beautiful flowers and movies to look at and Broadway plays to enjoy. Uh, I must have very tasty food, um, good company, people to love. All of these things, activities, I can be completely engaged in all of these things I need in the world. As I accumulate those activities, people, experiences, I keep getting bliss, more and more happiness. Now, this is one way of getting happiness. This is the worldly way. And the other way, the spiritual way is, there the question comes, if I am happiness itself, and uh, reflecting it in the mind uh, gives me the joy, the happiness. Okay, why do I need this third person, the object, the person outside? I and the mind should be enough. What is the connection with the world? And then we investigate and discover that actually we have a range of desires which we have generated in this lifetime and past lifetimes based on the idea that I am this body-mind. And therefore, I must have certain things to satisfy this body-mind. So I like certain kinds of food, certain kinds of activities. I like accumulating money, being rich, being famous, being liked by everybody. All these things I have desires, I have generated. Now, when I generate these desires in the mind, the mind breaks into waves, into tension, and it cannot reflect the joy that is within. And therefore, I am unhappy. And one way of uh, getting back my joy is to satisfy these desires so that the mind calms down and reflects my natural ananda. Let me repeat that. What is this analysis? If I am bliss itself and I need to reflect bliss in the mind in order to experience my own bliss, then I don't need the world. What has happened is I have convinced myself I need the world and because of past conditioning, now, if I can give up my desire for the world, if I can give up my need for the world, vairagya, dispassion, then the mind by itself should calm down and should reflect my natural bliss. I can test this hypothesis. The first, the worldly person says, the only way to reflect my joy in the mind, the only way to enjoy my own bliss in the mind is to satisfy the desires of the mind. The spiritual person says the better way to do that is to give up the desires in the mind and you will naturally manifest the, your own bliss, what you, what you are. 
because the more you pursue the um, desires in the world in order to satisfy them one after another, it's an endless thing. It's a rat race, meaning, meaning which you become still become a rat. There is no end to this race. Any mature person recognizes it. How much money is enough? How much um, you know, social media popularity is enough? How much praise is enough? How many awards? How many promotions? How much is enough? There will always be people who have much more. Um, and if I think that gives me more joy, I'll keep pursuing that. Not only that, not, not only that it's not enough, there is enormous amount of effort, time and energy spent in trying to get that. And a good deal of our life energy goes away into trying to get those things. Not only that, even more disastrous, when we do get it, and remember, not many people get it. If you are rich, if you are famous, if you are um, you know, beautiful or handsome, if you are liked, you are very fortunate. You are among a very tiny minority of people who get all these things. And yet the problem is, after we get it, it goes away. None of it is stable. Neither money is stable, nor likability is stable, nor health is stable, nor youth is stable. None of it. All of it is continuously flowing away, moment to moment disappearing. Samsaram means samsarati, that which slips away from us continuously. These are the defects for in trying to seek uh, happiness by getting objects in the world. So the spiritual seeker says, why not do the other thing? Give up the desires and see if it works. So, testing the hypothesis, if really joy is within me, and I am not experiencing it in the mind due to the desires, one way is to satisfy the desires, the other way is to give up the desires. So, give up the desires, you will get that happiness. So, the Upanishad says, the first track is worldly way of, another worldly way of, worldly and heavenly way of getting happiness. So, Upanishad speaks of, imagine the maximum possible happiness you can get in this world. First thing it says, very unpopular thing, it says, to really be happy in this world, you must be young. You are Syat. I remember I said this once in an ashram in, in Trabuco, Orange County in California. So most of the audience was middle-aged or a little older. The moment I said, first condition for being happy in the world is you must be young. The Upanishad says that. And they were like, boo, boo, from the back. <laughs> because most of the people were not young. They are not young. And they're not getting any younger. You are Syat. Must be young. And then, must be extremely, extremely rich. The world with all its wealth must be at his or her disposal. And not only that, this person must be cultured and educated. Adhyayaka. Ivy League. And must be a graduate of maybe, I don't know, what are the theater schools and Juilliard for the music school. All of that. And not only that, must have a good mind. Sadhu a good-natured, noble soul. Such a person has the maximum possible human happiness. Just imagine this person. I mean, just imagining it brings a smile to so many people's faces. Just imagine having that kind of uh, a position in the world. How many people have got it in the world in all of human history? Maybe in each generation, one or two persons might come close to it for a while. And then he says, there is more happiness possible 
if you perform these Vedic rituals and you go to heaven after death, you will get a hundred times the maximum human happiness. So this is worldly happiness, otherworldly happiness. Trying to get things in the world to reflect your joy in the mind. And the, the spiritual happiness starts with a hundred times of human happiness in the world. Worldly happiness. It says if you want that happiness on the spiritual path, he says, Shrotriya Brahmanishta, Akamahata, Shrotriya Brahmanishta. Um, if you are clear about the nature of the soul, of the Atman, I am this non-dual existence consciousness. You're clear about it, centered in it, and you let go worldly desires. Two things. Shrotriya, centered in your Advaitic consciousness as I am the witness consciousness. Everything else is an appearance in me. Second, combine it with Complete dispassion for that everything else. They're all appearances in me. Why should I have particular preferences? I want this and not, not that. If you have that, you will immediately get here in this world the hundred times happiness which is promised in heaven for the worldly person. And then the Upanishad goes in the same track. There are other heavens, higher heavens, with more wonderful objects of enjoyment extraordinary uh, pleasures are there and the more good karma you have the more of these heavens you go to that's a worldly otherworldly kind of happiness and it tells the spiritual seeker at every stage if you're centered in your advaitic consciousness and you have dispassion for those worldly otherworldly pleasures you will get that right now that hundred times thousand times ten thousand times worldly happiness you will get it right now and so it develops a calculus of happiness, going up to uh, one followed by 20 zeros uh, of the amount of maximum amount of human happiness. This is a calculation which, which does. Multiple heavens are there. So these are the two tracks of happiness, sukha. What are the two tracks? Worldly way of getting your own happiness. It's your own happiness. All the time, it's your own happiness. The worldly way of getting it. And the spiritual way, not otherworldly. Worldly and otherworldly all are on the part, same, same category because they all want happiness from objects, worldly objects or heavenly objects. But the spiritual uh, path is I am Brahman, Aham Brahmasmi. Be centered in that, not as, a, not as a rhetoric or as a slogan, actual understanding and clarity. Be centered in that. That requires purity of mind, that requires focus of mind. And combine it with complete dispassion. I do not need those objects. You will find your mind is full of bliss. Bursting forth with bliss. Okay. Third one. Third approach is the approach for Ananda of the enlightened one. The enlightened one, you know, to put it this way, this Sri Ramakrishna gives this rather gross example. The dog which found a rather dry uh, bone and chewed that bone and cut its own lip and blood dripped from it and it tasted the blood and the dog thought, what a tasty bone! And the dog carefully buried that bone and whenever it wanted joy, it would go and chew on that bone. It didn't know that the taste was coming from its own blood which the bone just man manifested because it cut its lip. All our seeking joy is like that. All our seeking joy in the world 
that reflected is reflecting our own joy on the mind and tasting that. It's actually a kind of silliness. It's like, you know what it's like? That, that urge, you might say it's a very reasonable urge. I don't know if I am blessed, but I must reflect it in the mind. I must taste that bliss. No, you mustn't. It's like saying, I, this is the face, but I really nearly need to reflect it in a mirror. Otherwise, I am sort of obsessed with seeing my own face in the mirror. Why? I'm terrified that if it is not reflected in the mirror, if I'm not seeing my face in the mirror, there's no face. It's no good having a face if I can't reflect it in the mirror. It's no good having a face if I can't take a selfie. You have the face. You may occasionally reflect it in the mirror. Doesn't matter. You should be completely indifferent to it. As grown-up people, unless you are a looks-obsessed teenager, as grown-up people, we are indifferent to it. The mirror is just for, is functional for us. We are not particularly bothered. So, the truly wise person, the enlightened person, is not crazy about reflecting joy or bliss in the mind. The enlightened person knows, Aham Brahmasmi, I am existence, I am consciousness, I am bliss. I am infinite existence, consciousness, bliss. Yes, if it gets reflected in this body, then I am an existing body. It's also limited. If it gets reflected in the mind and the senses, I am consciousness, having limited conscious experiences. And yes, if I, the Ananda, get reflected in the mind, I will get happiness. I will experience some reflected bliss. That's also temporary. Notice, the worldly and otherworldly joy and the spiritual joy, spiritual joy much more pure, but both of them come and go. Even for the most extraordinary mystic, like Sri Ramakrishna, did the joy not come and go? Not only that, the, the bliss, the reflected bliss in the mind, whether worldly or otherworldly, or spiritual, it all admits of grades, higher and lower. There is higher pleasure, greater pleasure, greater pleasure, more pleasure, more pleasure, in worldly sense. And in spiritual life also, more joy, more joy, more joy. Higher and higher. This higher and lower joy, coming and going joy, it's exactly like you, the face, which is always there, exactly the same, depending on mirror coming and going, mirror gets dirty, face gets obscured. Mirror is concave, face gets twisted. Reflected face only, not the real face. Mirror is convex, face gets twisted. Reflected face only, not real face. So the conditions of this joy, increasing and decreasing, coming and going, they all depend on the mind, not on you, the joy itself or bliss itself. The enlightened one knows this. The enlightened one does not think that the existence of the body is my existence. Death is nothing to me, the enlightened one says. The, existence, the enlightened one doesn't think, I, the limitless consciousness, must keep on having conscious experiences. No. In samadhi, out of samadhi, in waking, in dreaming, in deep sleep, I, the consciousness, am exactly the same consciousness. Similarly, if the mind is in joy, if the mind is not in joy, if the mind is in great joy or lesser joy, or if the mind is still in meditation, I am the same limitless joy. This is the enlightened one's attitude towards joy. 
Aham Brahmasmi, Aham Anandoham. I am bliss in that sense. Now that bliss, just as worldly pleasure, otherworldly pleasure can be expressed and measured, but um, Ananda itself cannot be expressed or measured. It is infinite and it cannot be expressed in language. Because it's not an objective kind of uh, happiness. It's not a reflected happiness. That's why it is two words are used here. Anirdeshyam paramam sukham. Sukham, happiness. Paramam, ultimate. Ultimate in the sense of not the highest worldly, otherworldly or spiritual bliss also. But it is the infinite ananda which you are or I am. Which is our reality. It's our existence itself. Same as sat, same as chit. So that is paramam. And anidhesyam cannot be expressed in language. Because whatever is objective can be expressed in language. Wittgenstein, what a wise man. He said the limits of the world, are the limits of language are the limits of the world. So whatever is in the world, language can express that. Whatever lang can language can express is in the world. But then here is the reality which language cannot express. Anidhesyam. Just as pure being cannot be expressed by language or thought, just as pure consciousness cannot be expressed by language or thought, pure bliss also cannot be expressed by language or thought. Mm. Couple of points, more quick ones. The first kind of happiness, worldly pleasure, otherworldly pleasure. This is called Vishayananda. Vishayananda. The Ananda from Vishaya, objects. Objects can be from a um, cookie um, to the most uh, best cuisine in the best restaurant in Manhattan to the, the nectar of the gods in heaven, huh? Amrita. That is all Vishaya, object. Then the spiritual joy, which is very different from the, wor the worldly joy, it's called Bhajanananda. The joy one gets in singing the names of the Lord. The joy that one gets in deep meditation, in samadhi. The joy that one gets in inquiry into who am I and being settling down there. The joy that one gets in selfless service of humanity. That is bhajanananda. The joy of selflessness. The joy of deep love and devotion. The joy of absolute focus on the highest reality. And the joy of realizing who I am. This is bhajanananda. That's the second track. But the enlightened perspective, person's perspective about joy is called Brahmananda. Brahmananda. Vishayananda, Bhajanananda, Brahmananda. And the second point I wanted to make is a question might arise. Okay. Um, the worldly person's pursuit of pleasure seems great but kind of exhausting. The second one seems much better and this seems much better to all of us because we are all spiritual seekers. That's what we are comfortable with. Spiritual practice. There is a joy in spiritual practice. I know when my spiritual practices go well, I'm in the right frame of mind. It is joyful. It's really a pure and blissful kind of thing. And that can increase. I understand that also. But this so-called enlightened person's perspective sounds a little hazy. Yeah. So will my question will be that, so when I become enlightened, do I lose all call it reflected happiness do I lose all of that or do I still have that don't worry you have it and in endless supply 
and you just what's the proof you just have to look at the lives of the saints those you consider to be enlightened uh, they are basically very happy people very naturally because the minds are already sattvic through long years of spiritual practice and the realization is effortlessly there so it is sort of effortlessly reflected in, in the mind just that the enlightened person is not attached to that joy also yeah so this is anirdeshyam paramam sukham this is these are this is the meaning of that term now i am happy there is a related question to this which the upanishad asks in the same mantra katham nu tad bijaniyam kimu bhati vibhati va this is great this pure existence pure consciousness pure bliss is it um, revealed is it experienceable or not and is it experienceable in specific ways or not this is a little or are you pulling a fast one on us that you know worldly joy i understand spiritual joy i sort of get it this one sounds like uh, some kind of theory so that question the upanishadic student is asking is it actually experienceable or not and then the most beautiful mantra comes let's go to the last mantra of this uh, section and a very great climax natatra suryo bhati na chandra tarakam nema vidyuto bhanti kuto yam agni tameva bhantam anubhati sarvam tasya bhasa sarvam idam vibhati um that is not revealed by the um, sun or the sun does not reveal it shine upon it reveal it nor the moon nor the stars nor these flashes of lightning kutoya magni what to speak of this mortal fire the little fire that we have lit you must think of the ancient rishis in the on the river bank or in the forests the blazing sun overhead at daytime at night the um, cool moon in the sky a star spangled sky and the little fire they have lit in the ashram to keep themselves warm and uh, flashes of lightning in the, in the sky this is light for them and so none of this light reveals consciousness but consciousness tameva bhantam consciousness shining anubhati sarvam everything else is revealed by um, by consciousness by the light of consciousness tasya bhasa bha means light tasya bhasa by it by its light consciousness is light sarvam idam vibhati everything here is lit up idam here here means whatever you experience as this this world of objects which we see hear smell taste touch and this world our inner world of thoughts emotions ideas memories desires understanding confusion pleasure pain suffering all of that that is also revealed by the same consciousness by the light of the same consciousness and beyond that the causal state of blankness in deep sleep that too is revealed by the same consciousness the gross physical world the subtle mental world mental emotional mind world of the mind and the deep sleep experience of blankness a potential state all three karana sukshma sthula all three are revealed by the same light consciousness is good for consciousness what about me you you shining everything here shines after you what is this everything shining you shining the mind shines then you have the experience of thinking remembering understanding desiring hating 
struggling, enjoying, suffering. You shining. You shining, the mind shines. And then the senses shine. By the senses shining, then you, the consciousness, are not only now able to think and feel, but you can see now. You can hear now. You can smell and taste and touch now. So you shining, all of these things shine. Tasya Vahasa, by light of that, by your light, all of these are lit up. The world is lit up, body is lit up, the senses are lit up, the mind is lit up. So this is the meaning. Um, let me uh, just talk about, let's go a little deep into it. How many times Vivekananda has mentioned this? Countless times both uh, here in the United States, in Europe, and in India, and many, many talks. He loved this language. He loved the Katopanishad. The Katopanishad was his favorite Upanishad, and this mantra was his, clearly his favorite mantra, and just because the sheer poetry of it and the philosophical depth of it. Um, let's take it in two stages, first and then deeper. That shining, everything else shines. So I Vivekananda put it in the uh, Arati, the Khandana Bhava Vandana Arati, which we sing in all our ashrams, at the very end, uh, is Jyoti Ra Jyoti Ujala Ridikandara. And the light of lights shining in our heart, which illumines that, um, um, which is that which is beyond speech and beyond language, and yet which illumines, which is the basis of all speech and thought. Beyond uh, thought and beyond language, sorry. Beyond thought and beyond language. Vakya manatita, manavachanaikadhara. That which is beyond language and beyond thought. What is beyond language and thought? Consciousness. You'll say, oh, but you are using the words, the word, language. You use the word consciousness. True. But what does it indicate? When we use the word consciousness, is it indicating pure consciousness or one of the conscious events in our uh, uh, experience? No language can refer to pure consciousness. Even if you say pure consciousness, it still cannot refer to pure consciousness. It will work only for a person who is enlightened. That person knows what is meant by pure consciousness. That person knows what is meant by pure existence or knows what is meant by pure bliss. And knows also, technically, knows not through the mind, not through language, knows the Atman through the Atman only. Sri Ramakrishna said, Bodhe Bodhkara, consciousness by consciousness, awareness of awareness, not by any of the mental constructs or by let alone by senses. All right. Um, Jyoti Ra Jyoti. Uh, Swami Vivekananda said, light of lights. Ujala Ridikandara, uh, which lights up our heart. Heart means the mind, the intellect, actually. Shankaracharya says, Buddhi Guha. The heart means the cave of the intellect, of our understanding, basically. And very interesting that uh, Arati uh, hymn, which is sung every day in the evening, where we are performing ritualistic worship of Sri Ramakrishna. And uh, what are you singing? Thou art the light of lights, which illumines our hearts. The basis beyond language, beyond thought. The basis of all language and thought. You are the light of lights. Where are you? Illumining our minds, our hearts, our minds, our intellects. But what illumines our mind, our intellect? You, the consciousness. You are worshipping God and you are singing a hymn, hymn to God which is referring to you. See, 
this is the identity of the cosmic and the individual. That as pure consciousness, you're the same. That this is the meaning of Tattvamasi or Aham Brahmasmi. I am Brahman. All right. Two big points. I'll make it fast. First of all, um, like a huge philosophical point to be made here. That shining, all this shines. There are five broad philosophical categories and philosophical approaches to this. Approaches to what? What shining, what, what shines? And that shining, this shines. What does it mean? So, there is this um, one approach is things exist in the world and they are revealed to you. They shine in your consciousness. Things exist. There is a world and then you experience a world. In philosophy, this is called realism. And this is the basis of all materialism, of all atheism, of all materialistic philosophies. The world exists and by some process, Darwinian evolution, this existing world, part of it becomes, the material world becomes living matter, bodies. And this living matter organizes itself into ever finer nervous systems and brains. And that nervous system and brain produces consciousness, which is now able to experience this material universe. This is existence first, illumination next. World exists and then is experienced. World exists, then is illumined. First existence, then shining. This is materialism. Second one, the shining first and then the existence next. The existence depends on the shining. Who says this? All theistic religions. The religions of the world, they say, God created the universe. So, where is the connection with the shining and all? This God, God of yours, is this God conscious or not conscious? Conscious, of course. No God, nobody will think my God is an unconscious God. God, my God is conscious, not only conscious, very, very conscious, very intelligent. Is a powerful mind, the mind of God, and from that conscious God has come this material universe. The existence of this universe comes after the shining of the mind of God. In fact, the very language, and the biblical language, the God saw and it was good. God saw the creation, the seeing. Upanishad says, Ikshate, Tad Aikshata, it saw. And in the seeing was the creation. How can seeing be creation? You do it every day. Every day in the night when you go to sleep and, um, and dream, and in your dream, what is your dream but seeing? You see a dream world. And the dream world pops into existence for you. For you. It pops into existence. And the existence of the dream world depends on your dreaming. It's not that the people and the places which you saw when you go into your dream existed before your dreaming. No, they exist only when you are dreaming. They depend on your dreaming. That's why if you order a pizza and it's time to wake up, you can't put the pizza, the leftovers in the fridge and say, next time I dream, I'll come and eat the leftovers. You cannot, because the fridge and the pizza will all disappear the moment you wake up. Their existence depends on your seeing, on your dreaming. Similarly, the universe is created by the seeing. In fact, in um, the Hindu idea, it's basically the dream of God. Vishnu, who sustains this universe, how does he sustain it? By dreaming. He's a couch potato, a bit of a couch potato. He lies down on his cosmic serpent, Sheshanaga. And he 
he is basically dreaming this universe. So the shining first and then the existence. That's second theory. That's the theory of all theistic religions in the, in the world. Different language, but basically that. Consciousness first, divine consciousness, then this world. Third, both are true. Don't privilege either of, uh, or the other. The seer and the seen, the subject and the object, you the shining and the world you shine upon. Both have their individual existence and both interact. Who says this? Sankhya. The Patanjali yoga philosophy. The Jainas. And in some sense, the Nayaikas and Vaisheshikas. In some sense, I'll qualify it. So parallel reality. It's not that material universe generated the shining consciousness. It's not that the shining consciousness has generated the universe. There is a world, a real world. And there is consciousness. Both have their own individual existence and they interact. They are all realities interacting with each other. Sankhya said it. Yoga said it. The Jainas have said it. Maybe Nyaya Vashishika upon one reading. David Chalmers is saying it today. Panpsychism. It's a fundamental ubiquitous reality in the universe. But not just David Chalmers. A sort of cursory look around the... the and the literature shows Donald Hoffman, Bernardo Castro, um, um, who's the uh, other one. They are all, they're all, all are saying this, uh, same, beginning to say the same thing. All right. Um, that's the third theory. The fourth theory is um, the fourth theory is the Buddhist approach. The Buddhist approach says, "Sorry to deflate your balloon." Notice one thing, when you are experiencing the world, you are the experience and the world is experienced. The moment either of them drop out, the other also drops out. For example, if you knock everything away in the world, there's nothing to experience. You will have no sense of your own existence also. If the world is not there, body is not there, mind is not there, thoughts, feelings, emotions, perceptions, nothing is there. You cannot say, stay by yourself and think, I am consciousness. No, you can't. Because even that I am consciousness thinking is not possible without the mind. So without any object, the subject also disappears. And without the subject, the objects disappear. Yeah. The, um, uh, the consciousness side people are also right. Just think about it. If everything is there, but just you're not conscious. Yeah. Suppose there's no consciousness at all. Then there is no evidence of a world. So, Chandrakirti, the great uh, disciple of Nagarjuna, he gives the example of two sheaves of hay leaning against each other. Advaitin will never give this example. It's a Buddhist, a Tibetan Buddhist who gives this example. Two sheaves of hay leaning against each other. If you remove one, the other falls also. Subject and object depend on each other. Which one is real? The materialist says object is real. Subject comes from the object. The um, theist says the subject is real. Object comes from the subject. The Sankhyan yoga, yogic say they say both are real. They are both real. They stand upon themselves and they interact. The Shunyavadi Buddhist and the Kshanika Vijnanavadi Buddhist says neither are real. I'm sorry to say. They both appear depending on each other. Yet there is no, there is no evidence that each any, any of them enjoys any kind of independent reality. There is nothing that is independently real. It is mithya, it is false, it is emptiness. It's emptiness. 
It's a series of appearances in emptiness. We don't deny that you're appearing, but appearance is a dependent appearance. This is called Kshanika Vigyanavada. Finally, what is the Advaitic, the fifth approach? What is the question? This is the question of this shining, that shines. This is the question of that. So you see what a great sweep of philosophy is covered in this phrase. Fifth approach is, and by the way, when I say fifth approach, I am just giving, this is the shortest way I can put this. Otherwise, just to explain this, Tameva Bhanta Manuhati Sarvam, to explain this, you will need a full course in Indian philosophy, in the epistemology and metaphysics in Indian philosophy, covering at least 2,500 years. This, this, is, this is so broad, this, this idea. The fifth approach is Advaita Vedanta. What does Advaita Vedanta say? It is not falsity. Both subject and object are appearances in one underlying reality. Whatever you may say, the Buddhist might say, how do you know it's not falsity? Best argument is given by Descartes. Your own existence, it is not false because that's the one irreducible thing you end up with. The one thing that you cannot deny is the existence of the denier. To deny, to say that it's all empty, the one which says it's all empty cannot be empty. One which testifies to the emptiness of, of it all. So the irreducibility of the, the, uh, the underlying awareness, which, ex, which can experience all of this. It is not moment, just a series of momentary appearances in emptiness. Because the Atman of Vedanta is the witness of the momentariness and its, uh, its appearance and disappearance. What is momentary? Appearing and disappearing experiences. The appearance of the experience is illumined by you, the consciousness. And the, because it's momentary, the next moment it disappears. That disappearance is illumined by you, the consciousness. There's a deep argument hidden here. See, the argument against momentariness of consciousness is that you experience something, right? It's a, it's a flash of an experience. Good. If it's a flash of an experience, if it's a discrete experience, it began and ended in a moment. Then between this experience one and the next flash of the experience, there must be an, a momentary gap also. If it, there's no gap, then it will be continuous experience. Then you cannot talk about momentary flashes of experience. If there are momentary flashes of experience, between two experiences is a gap. What testifies to that gap? If there is a consciousness which illumines the gap and reveals the gap in momentary experiences, then that consciousness cannot be momentary. If there is no consciousness which reveals the gap in momentary experiences, then it cannot be momentary experiences. It must be continuous experience. Continuous experience is again continuous consciousness. So continuous consciousness is proved even by the thesis of momentary consciousness. Anyway, all of this is to show the Atman of Vedanta is the witness of the momentary experiences. The, um, it is the ground on which subject and object arise. That which shines and that which is revealed by the shining. That one. It shines forth as object and subject. It shines forth as conscious experiences and the object of conscious experiences. It shines forth as pain and pleasure. It has both existence and non-existence, appearance and disappearance. This is what is shining for. This Atman, Brahman, shining forth, all else shines. Subject and object, creator and created, material world and um, subjective world. By its light, 
everything here is revealed. Not only revealed, it's given existence. Okay. Uh, this is the meaning. Tameva bhantam anubhati sarvam. Um, let me, it will be better if, instead of explaining any further to take a look at the uh, questions. Because this, is, this was one level of explanation. The deeper level was more experiential, using vichara. Uh, if you remember, ask me next time. I'll just add one more to it. How do we experientially use this? Tameva bhantamanu bhati sarvam to go back to the witness consciousness and to, to see this as a reality, as an experience in our lives. Um, okay. Let me just quickly look at the questions. There are a lot of questions. Priya says that our existence and consciousness is same in the way you are explaining now. Our, they are the same. In Advaita Vedanta, consciousness and existence are not separate. Consciousness and existence are same in the ultimate sense. As Sat and Chit. Shweta says, but in mystical experience, the awareness can be seen in its pure nature. If it is seen, literally, what is its seer? Just like when the gold is not made into ornament, it can be appreciated as gold itself. Even when it is made into ornament, it can be appreciated as gold itself. When it is a bracelet, after all, what's the difference between ornament and a brick of gold? A lump of gold. Lump of gold is a shapeless lump. Same gold, when you make it into ornament. What will reveal to you the gold in an ornament? Well, the direct answer is gold in the ornament is not hidden. It's always there. You're looking at it, you're looking at gold. Just as wooden table. When I touch it and I say touch wood, that means the wood is always revealed to me. But it can seem to be hidden by the name form activity. Like the story of the little boy who worked in a jeweler's shop. Um, the jewelers told the boy, go to the vault, here's the key to the vault. Get some gold for me. And the boy ran to the vault and came back and says, there's no gold. And the jeweler was aghast, what do you mean? There's so much gold there. No, there's no gold, I looked. And then the jeweler rushed back in anxiety. And he says, look, it's full of gold. Here, look, bracelets, necklaces, the, um, uh, you know, uh, crowns and uh, coins. And the boy said, yes, but the necklaces, bracelets, crown, bracelets, crowns and coins, where is the gold? He thought there's something separate that must be gold. <laughs> Why is gold hidden for the boy? It's hidden because of the name and form and function. It's literally the same thing. Here it is, the world. This is Brahman. Oh, so as the, this is Brahman. That annoying person is Brahman. This miserable life I have is Brahman. No, 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 no. Annoying person, miserable life. This is name, form and function. The reality of that name, form and function is Brahman. And that's perfect. There's no problem there at all. In mystical experience, what happens is either you have the experience of God in a particular name and form, which is a sattvic name and form, Shuddha Sattva, which does not hide, elide, or eclipse the nature of consciousness. That's why it is a very elevating and trans, uh, transformative and deep experience. Or what is called even higher, bodhe bodh, what Sri Ramakrishna saw, said, awareness of awareness. But you will notice that technically speaking, you are not objectifying consciousness there. That cannot be done. And uh, good that it cannot be done. Mystical experience as in samadhi where you are absorbed in the light of the self, yes, 
that is possible so that is not there is no separate person seeing that light of the self then it would become an object aditya says if ananda covers all forms of joy can one say that ananda also covers all emotions yes those emotions also exist does ananda only cover positive emotions no ananda is that which is always shining and all these emotions are produced in the mind depending on what range of ananda is revealed the emotions are appearances in the mind it's the mind which takes the form of these emotions even the joy in the mind is also form of that emotion it is 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 actually produced by the mind some of these emotions manifest ananda better than others that's all kiran says i read somewhere that sukha has an opposite dukha ananda has no opposite that is true ananda has no opposite sukha and dukha are there pleasure and pain but ananda has no opposite you might say just like existence does existence have an opposite you say yeah swami the existence is non existence but does non existence exist no of course not it's non existence so the opposite of existence does not exist because anything that exists is existence um similarly consciousness as pure consciousness does it have an opposite unconscious no even what we call unconscious is illumined by consciousness shiva priya says in meditation at any point of time one shifts one's focus very spontaneously from ishta to some joyful magical light one feels blissful maximum happiness for some time thinking this consciousness but blank and bright then isn't all part of imagination though it is a happy experience is it duality this type of reflected bliss coming and going not the actual one depend on the mind um if from the ishta you go back to an awareness to the awareness of light that means consciousness itself that's good that's good but remember anything that comes and goes which it means it's still there's a dependence on the mind there's a mind involved there pure consciousness never comes and goes it reveals that which comes and goes but that doesn't mean you will abandon these uh, practices in the concentrating on the ishta devata this is a wonderful thing and this this is far better than concentrating on miserable things in the world to keep your mind on the ishta devata to keep your mind on awareness itself and that's a far better than thing than to keep your mind on uh, occurrences in the world shweta says we can always maintain the bliss of awareness even when engaged in activity by constant remembrance we should put effort to stay with the sense of i amness every moment correct lang lu says what is the downside one practice advaita vedanta but not taking it as religion like sam harris's approach to non duality hmm sam harris actually uh, he mentions that um, he is he is very much against religion in just about all its forms except he makes an exception for um zogchen buddhism and advaita vedanta these are the two things which he says there's a core of truth in them which is undeniable and they directly point to the truth but the downside hmm just think about that if you take the system of advaita vedanta or zogchen buddhism as it is taught with the preliminary practices and cautions there should be no downside that is the practice that is all of advaita or zogchen buddhism but if one takes just the core insight and says that here you are your pure consciousness illumined 
it might not work or it might be appealing but still not satisfactory or it might work and be appealing but still not be stable to be stable and beneficial one needs the preliminaries shweta says in deep sleep the experience also vanishes only when we awake up do we say we slept like a log where is the atman during deep sleep that which reveals the atma, the deep sleep experiencer who is the experiencer it is the atman clothed with the mind when the mind shuts down remember mind does mind does not vanish in deep sleep if it vanished you would never wake up even deep sleep is whose deep sleep it's the mind's deep sleep it's the mind which has shut down just because a car is shut down and in your garage doesn't mean the car has vanished it can work it'll work the computer shut down nothing is happening doesn't mean all your data is gone it's there hopefully it's there similarly when the mind shuts down in deep sleep the mind is there it's the mind's deep sleep atman is the one which reveals the mind in deep sleep it's not an experiencer in that sense it becomes an experiencer experiencing subject so this is exactly what i was saying now that shining everything else shines it's not that the experiencer shining that the experienced object shines rather the atman shining experiencer and experienced both come up vivekananda's poem one only exists it appears as nature soul object subject but one only exists it appears as this that one shining both of these shine now the one always there and these two are lit up but they sometimes do not shine as in deep sleep or in samadhi then only the one is there shri ram says when nisargadatta says that at death consciousness also leaves is it chit or chidabhas chidabhas yes chidabhas not chaitanya because in nisargadatta's books you will notice there is a distinction made between consciousness and awareness consciousness goes away at death awareness continues so people get confused what are they trying to say it's translated from marathi so you have to give some leeway for the translation sangeeta says so opposites can exist in ananda but that's it's not opposite of ananda itself opposites can exist in sat in chit and in ananda so in satchidananda opposites can exist but there is no opposite of satchidananda that's the best way to put it parul says can you recite this valya again the shrotriya uh, kamahata that one that's from the eighth anuvaka of brahmananda valli taittiriya upanishad there are three vallis shikshavalli brahmananda valli and bhriguvalli in the second one the brahmananda valli the end of that is this this um, um anandam imam so the eighth anuvaka there you will find these three tracks worldly other worldly track 1 spiritual track track 2 and the ultimate realization aham brahmasmi aham ananda i am ananda itself that is track 3 language there is little different and um, this is basically um, vishayananda bhajanananda and brahmananda those terms are not used but this is basically what they mean sri ramakrishna uses those terms vishayananda bhajanananda brahmananda what should we do try to give up vishayananda uh, the, the pursuit of vishayananda as soon as possible don't worry you will not be deprived of joy you will get much better joy at much less effort with much less danger with much more stability by bhajanananda and thereby through bhajanananda to attain to our to brahmananda which you are actually
Priya says, uh, what is the connection of the enlightened approach to the world? That is, how does oneness manifest as this universe? Uh, Rick is right. End of this month, uh, I have an interview with Sam Harris. Thanks to Rick, actually. Uh, Sri Ram says, focus on awareness. Ishta Devata assures in revelation, direct perception. Is this their mechanism to reach to the ultimate state? Yes, 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 certainly. Certainly. One is the vichara inquiry, which will directly take you to an appreciation of existence, consciousness, bliss. Or meditation and upasana, ishta devata, which will indirectly, but it will take you there also. Same thing. Good. Om Shanti 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 Harihi Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupa Namastu